And so we're going to pick up where we left off. If you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We looked at a lot of verses there last week. And as we're standing together, we're going to look at one verse together this morning. We're going to wrap up this series on passion and power. And we're going to wrap up the chapter. We stopped with verse 57 last week. But we're going to pick up with verse 58 and look at verse 58 this morning because there's a lot of encouragement in this one verse. There's a lot of preaching that Paul packed into this one verse here. And so if you found your place, let's look at this last verse together. Verse 58 says, Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling or abounding in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Father, I pray that we would all be encouraged by this verse this morning, that we would discover what it is that you want to continue to do in our lives as we reflect on your passion and your power and finding our identity in you And the fact that you are alive and well, Lord, I pray that we would understand the therefore of this text today, that we would know why you have given us this admonition, this reminder that you're alive and well, and that we can be found in you and find life in you. Father, give me the words that you would have me speak this morning, but more importantly, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take your word and drive it deep into our hearts that it would bring about a change of life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. How many of you will be honest and say that you have ever been frustrated because of poor internet connectivity? Just raise your hand. How many of you have ever been frustrated? Uh, Jeff in the back, his hand just went way up high. You get frustrated because of poor internet connectivity. You've been there before, haven't you? Yeah, we've been here around here uh, at the church before. We've been that way at home. And I know that some of you, some of you, I envy you because you have mastered the art of surviving in this life apart from all the gadgets that we've attached ourselves to thanks to the internet. Indeed, it has brought a lot of heartache and heartbreak and problems into people's lives, and it's actually opened the door to a lot of sin, but the sin that some of us encounter is simply our attitude when it's not happening so quick. And this, you know, what the microwave did for speeding things up with food, the internet has done so much more. We expect things to happen so quickly. You're paying a bill, and all of a sudden, internet is dropped, and you're thinking, did that payment go through? If I send it again, will they deduct twice as much from my account? What just happened here? You're trying to retrieve messages, or maybe you're uploading a video, and you're going, good night, I've been here for like 40 seconds, and this video hasn't been uploaded yet, or 40 minutes may be the case. Uploading photos, You've got a school project. I know college students, for all of you parents who are saying, well, we just need to leave the internet, we don't have to. Listen, if you have college students, you know that it's almost uh, a necessity today for them to have access, but a college student's trying to get a project turned in on time, and maybe in high school this is something that happens. 
And all of a sudden, they lose internet connectivity. And they're, they're thinking, man, this means a B instead of an A. If I turn this in, by the time I get connectivity back. Because of loss of internet connectivity, some, somebody could be playing a video game and it get frustrated with a, with a cell phone. And we're thinking, what in the world are they so upset with their phone about? Tempers flare. Tears flow. Objects have been thrown and broken all because of a lack of internet connectivity or in some cases, uh, for those of us who have wrestled with wind trickle a few times, maybe just slow Wi-Fi. Threats are made. We lose our sanctification. We lose our joy because of low internet or slow internet connectivity. Let me ask you a question this morning. What if we were as desperate to stay connected with God as we are with the internet? What if we were as desperate and as frustrated when our walk with God and and our connectivity with the Spirit-filled life, when, when it's just not flowing and when the Word of God's not being uploaded, what if we were that frustrated? What if we were that broken over the fact that our kids aren't connected, aren't consistent? Oh, it was great one day, but it's not so great the next. What if we were as frustrated when it's inconsistent as we are when our Wi-Fi is inconsistent? When that walk with God is not what it should be. The therefore in this text, therefore, all these arguments about the resurrection that we looked at last week, this defense of the faith that Paul articulated, the fact that Jesus is alive, our identity is in him, the fact that he was saying, listen, your faith isn't fluff, man, it is built on something real. And and, and last week, everybody was embracing that, man, I believe in something that is real and something that is lasting, something that is substantive. The fact that our identity and the passion and power of Christ that, that I identify with him in his death so that in the likeness of his resurrection I am raised to walk in newness of life. All of that comes down to a therefore, what do we do with it? Why do we deny ourselves and take up our cross and come alive in Christ? For so many, it's for an emotional moment or a short season of life. Or maybe they end up on a a spiritual roller coaster where there are some highs, but there's a lot of lows, up and down, up and down, but no consistent connectivity in this identity with Christ. Not coming to a place where, like Paul would say, as for me, to live is Christ. Now, we like the second part of that, right? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Man, I'm glad that I'm saved because I know that when I die, I'm going to heaven. But I think we can be no more excited about spending eternity in heaven if he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If my life is not Christ, then to die can't be gain. And so if you want to be able to look forward to the glories of heaven, you have to ask yourself this question this morning. Does that mean in this life, this side of heaven, my life is summarized by this one word, Christ, and my identity in him? What is Paul's heart? He's saying, therefore, my beloved brethren. My, and the Christian 
standard version, my dear brothers and sisters, before he gives some imperatives here, and we're going to look at each one of these imperatives in just a moment, I want you to see that he's appealing on the basis of a loving relationship. He's wanting to say, dear ones, my beloved, those of you that I love, I want you to know something. These facts need to mean something in your life. I love the way that Paul does it. So many times he communicates and he shares his love for the people with whom he's communicating. And as your pastor this morning, can I just stop and say, I want you to know that I love you, that I love this church. And when I say this church, I don't just mean the, the building and the campus. I mean I love the people of Trinity Baptist Church. And as a pastor, my love for you wants you to not settle for anything less than God's best. to to get in on what God has for you, whatever season of life that you're in. God's allowed me to be here for 18 years, and that love has only grown and grown during these years that I've been here. And I can now empathize probably more than ever with Paul's words saying, I want you to know I love you, but there's something I want for you. There's something I want to see happen in your life. And, and I've learned during this time, Colossians 4, 6 let's, says, let your words be with grace, seasoned with salt. Let your conversation be with grace. That if you want to communicate something, you've got to do it through love. And this morning, I hope you hear a heart of love from this pastor. I hope you hear the heart of love from this apostle right here, the apostle Paul, who's writing to the church at Corinth, and he's saying, I, listen, I know you're struggling with all kinds of things, but Man, I I want you to experience this. Therefore, those of you that I love dearly, how can we see this passion and power continue in your life? And then we find these imperatives within this one verse. Everything is built up to this. Let's live it out now. First and foremost, he says, I want you to be firmly grounded in the faith. I want you to be firmly grounded in the faith. He says, be steadfast. The word steadfast means to be settled, not shifting anymore. It's not not the sand that's flowing along in the stream, but it's that which has settled like stones down into the bottom and it's not being moved. There's a sense of being established there, firmly grounded in the faith. Paul would tell the church at Colossae in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, Continue to live your lives in Him. So walk in Him. Salvation is just the beginning. He says, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Strengthened, established, settled, firmly grounded in the faith. Being able, I believe, as Jude says in verse 3, to contend earnestly for the faith. Know what you believe, why you believe it, know how to fight for it. I pray that as a church that we will be and we will continue to bring up generations who can contend for the faith. It not just be, I believe this because that's what mom and grandma believed, although that is good. But if you haven't noticed, they don't naturally start singing at age 13, give me that old time religion. You need to infuse in them a passion for the Word of God that they know what they believe and why they believe it and how to defend it. 1 Peter 3.15, that they would be able to give a defense 
and apologetic, an apologia for the hope that is within them. Because the old adage, because I said so, isn't going to last forever. Ephesians 3.17, Christ living in your hearts, you rooted and established in love. Speaking of that relationship with Christ, we want to see a generation so established in the faith that we know that wherever life takes that generation, that faith will be steadfast, that it will be firmly grounded. Psalm 1 describes it like this in verse verse 3, like a tree planted by rivers of living water, which brings forth its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does prospers. That's the prosperity there. The the prosperity message of Scripture is not fame and fortune and health and wealth. It's abiding in Christ, being so firmly established in Him that we get involved in His will for our life and bear fruit as a result of that. That's prosperity. That's what I want for my kids. That's what I want for your children and your grandchildren. That's what I want for this church family, that we be firmly grounded in the faith. That's why the seven summits language we use around here, and we're going to start using it a lot more. It's a big part of who we are. It's a a paradigm for us, but it's a biblical paradigm for us seeing people established in the faith. And so you're going to start seeing that even more and more in the days to come, and it's going to provide more and more accountability for our children's and youth workers. But I want you to see this paradigm not only as from, as we say, cradle to tassel, as helping us make fully devoted followers of Christ, but also I want you to see kind of the horizontal relationship that it's as something that all of us as adults need to revisit each one of these summits continually on a regular basis and, and be held accountable to the competencies of each one. The first one is the provision summit. Now, that's where we really get started with from, from birth through our preschool ages. We have a celebration for that summit It's called parent-child dedication. I want to encourage you. It seems like every Mother's Day and Father's Day we have people that want to do a parent-child dedication. I want to encourage you to do that with your kids. It may just seem like a religious formality to you, but it's saying I want to be held accountable by the body of Christ, and we as parents commit ourselves to the nurture and admonition to providing a, a home of love and truth. And so we want to equip our homes to provide that in this provision summit. So it's not just for the kids, it's for every family to provide that environment. The presentation summit, those years where kids are starting to understand the basics of the gospel, the love of Christ, the the cross of Christ, repentance, faith, sin, and those words, and memorizing scripture about that. When they come to a, an understanding of the gospel and they repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have a celebration for that. It's called water baptism. But there are adults who need to experience water baptism when they nail down their salvation in Jesus Christ. That's a summit of life, but that summit needs to be revisited because all of us need to continually be being equipped to share our faith with our neighbors, the nations, and the next generation. Preparation. That summit where we focus especially on those fifth and sixth graders as a paradigm of spiritual growth, and they begin to learn their identity and their image. But haven't we all needed to return to that summit, finding our identity in Christ? The Purity Summit of 7th and 8th grade years, 
where we're saying we want to teach you what it means to live a consecrated life, and we want to explain why you need to live a life set apart. I have found that so few Bible-believing Christians really understand what it means to bring up a generation who live a consecrated life, set apart for God's purposes, for God's glory, so that the next generation can be distinguished from the children of the world. The Purpose Summit. All of us need to revisit that summit, but especially in those ninth and 10th grade years, that's when a young person is starved for what is my purpose in life. They learn to live their life on mission or without purpose, one or the other, often during those years. But all of us have to come back and answer that question. What's my purpose? We have to answer that question as a church. Why are we here? What have we been established for the church? So these are summits we revisit continually as adults for the sake of accountability. The Passion Summit, those 11th and 12th grade years where you get a vision for your family, for your future, for your career. And so we talk about a junior-senior retreat and the time of celebration and Pursuit Summit, launching out from that moment where as a church we have a graduate recognition service. I pray that all of you, and I've got one this year, that have graduating seniors take time as a family to have a celebration and not only to have a party but to speak words of life into them in front of their peers. And all of us need to be revisiting those summits constantly. Because life never gets easy, right? I mean, some of us are glad we're like, we don't have to repeat middle school again, aren't we? And we're glad, man, the, boy, aren't those tough years. So I get so excited about uh, this summer, our middle school camp. Man, it, those, that, that, that provides an encounter and a time of discipleship. Last year, in case you missed it, at our middle school camp, one of the most powerful moments is that altar was full. As kids were talking about their faith with their counselors and, and chaperones, it was such a, a dynamic move of God at middle school camp. But it's so hard. We're so busy nowadays. We don't want to sacrifice to say, what will it take to attend a middle school camp? I, I'm, I, I shared the other day on social media a post by a children's pastor in North Carolina, and he said one of the greatest parent fails that he sees on a regular basis is, is that they would expect their kids to sacrifice something for the sake of sports, but they won't sacrifice anything for the sake of church and the sake of their faith. And so I'm going to ask you, sacrifice for each one of these summits. Don't let your kids miss out on a middle school camp or that uh, miss out on that um, junior-senior retreat, whatever opportunity they get. That mission trip, I don't know if we can really send them on a mission trip. The kids are often ready to go. The parents don't know if they can let them go far from home. Watch what God wants to do in their life when they experience that. It's not just for our children and youth. It's for all of us to be growing in love, growing in the gospel, growing in holiness, living our life on mission, having a vision for the future, allowing God to change us on a regular basis. So we've got to be firmly grounded in the faith. That's my heart for you as a church family, that you would be firmly grounded in the faith, steadfast. You're not going anywhere. 
And I'm, just, I'm not just talking about moving locations or from one church to another. I'm talking about in the faith, you are established. And you're going to be with the stuff. You're going to be in the Word for the rest of your life. Secondly, it's Paul's heart that they would be resilient in the face of opposition. Resilient in the face of opposition. It sounds like he's speaking synonyms here when he says steadfast and then says immovable. But while steadfast focuses on you being established and firmly grounded inwardly, the word immovable has to do with the assumption of outward forces acting upon you, that you're not going to let those outward forces move you. And we need to learn to be resilient in the face of opposition. It's finding your identity in Christ and then knowing that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So I'm going to be established and firmly grounded, but I'm also going to be steadfast and resilient in the face of opposition. Temptation is coming my way. But this is a life where I constantly say, that I'm laying aside the sin and whatever other weights easily entangle me or distract me from the call God's got on my life. And I'm running with endurance the race set before me. And I'm fixing my eyes on Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross and now I'm finding my identity in him living this life with him. And allowing him to live this life through me in the face of opposition. It says with James who said in James 1 and 2, count it all joy... Wait, wait a minute. You don't want to go there, do you? Count it all joy, he says, when you encounter trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith is going to do what? It's going to make you more resilient. It's going to produce patience, and you're going to let that have its perfect work, that you might be mature and complete, lacking nothing. You're going to build a certain resilience in your life because of opposition, because of persecution. The attacks outwardly become stepping stones so that you become stronger in the faith, resilient in the face of opposition. See, while that first word, steadfast, kind of pictures us having roots like an oak, (laughs) the word immovable helps us to picture more like a palm tree at the trunk that we're able to bend, and no matter what storms Come our way, we're going to bend with the storm, but we're going to bounce back and we're going to stay put. I appreciated the uh, Mullis's gave me a book this past summer I read on vacation called The Resilient Life by Gordon MacDonald. And, and in that book, I want to challenge you to get a copy and read it. I bet Mitch would buy you a copy too if you ask him, right? In that book, he says, resilient people are committed to finishing strong. Resilient people are inspired by the big picture of life. Resilient people run free of the weight of the past. And so it teaches you how to let go of the past. Don't use your past as an excuse not to be immovable in your present and in your future. Resilient people train in order to go the distance. That means discipleship is part of your life. Spiritual training is part of your life so that you're building resilience in your life. And resilient people run in the company of 
a happy few. You find other people who want to be victorious for the cause of Christ, and you lock arms with them. You have accountability in your life. You have commitment to a church family, but with small groups and even accountability partners within that church family. That brings resilience in the face of opposition. That says we need God, but we also need each other in this process. Be resilient in the face of opposition. He says, I want you to be steadfast. That's that's that inwardly being established, firmly grounded in the faith. Be resilient, immovable, not shaken by the outward forces of this world. And this thing is going to be a lasting thing. Number three, learn to serve God with excellence from the overflow. Learn to serve God with excellence from the overflow of what he's doing in your life. Always, what does he say here? Always excelling. Some translations use the word abounding. The New Living Translation says to work enthusiastically. The idea here could have two connotations here in the original language. One is to go beyond that which is expected, to excel, excellence. The other is to overflow or to superabound from within, something that's overflowing here. And I think both apply. We can serve the Lord with excellence if we serve from the overflow of what God's doing in our life when we're firmly established in Him and being resilient in the face of opposition. Not just giving God your best, because if all you try to do is give God your best, you're going to burn out because our best only goes so far. Listen, here's the next step. This is what transcends giving God your best, is overflowing with His best. As you abide in Christ, and He is producing fruit through your life, that's why we spend a Sunday on the Spirit-filled life, because if you try to do this in your own strength, you're going to burn out. Not just giving God your best, but overflowing with His best. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't just mean figure out whether or not you're saved. It means if you're saved and Christ is living in you, it's going to work itself out. But as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he says, for it is him who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So you're learning to yield to the process of him working in you. And then like Psalm 100 and verse 2, then you can serve the Lord with gladness. People should see a joy in your heart. You know, there are some folks going on a mission trip to Peru with me this summer. Pray for them. If I want them to ever go on another mission trip with me, then I better make sure that I'm serving the Lord with gladness, that they see joy in me. Because if they say, man, we went on a mission trip with Pastor Robbie, but he was no fun. He was hard. He was, you know, he was kind of mean, or he, he lost his cool. They won't want to do that again. But if I serve the Lord with gladness and I don't get in the flesh and they see me serving from the overflow of what God's doing in my life, then they'll want to do another mission trip. They'll want to go again. They'll want to be a part of what. We've got to learn to serve the Lord with gladness out of the overflow of what he's doing in our life. That means your spiritual life. Your walk with God has to be a priority over your service to God. And so many times we have to pull back and say, you know what, I just need to spend some time with Jesus right now. Remember Mary and Martha? Now, some of you are just Mary's by nature, right? You'd rather just sit at the feet of Jesus than anything. Some of you are Martha's by nature. 
and you'll get upset at the Marys who are sitting at the feet of Jesus, and God may be saying, you know what, you need some time at my feet. You need to sit at my feet for a while and learn of me and be refreshed and be refueled so that you can serve me out of the overflow of what I'm doing in your life. There's a resilience there that leads to an overflow of what God's doing within us. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always, 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 continually. I had the privilege in the late 1990s, I was asked by a friend of mine. I was doing student ministry, and he was doing student ministry in Western North Carolina. And he called me up, and he said, Robbie, I want you to go on a road trip with me. I'm like, man, that sounds cool. And so I'll use some, some time off, and I'll go up and go on a road trip. Oh, he goes, with my youth group. He said, <laughs> he said I'm planning a road trip for my youth group, and we're going to go up to West Virginia, and we're going to go whitewater rafting, and then we're going to go across. We're going to see some historical sites and uh, go to Washington, D.C., and we're going to go to a, and it's the first year of interleague play between American and National League, and so we're going to watch the Braves play the Orioles at Camden Yard. I said, I'm there. I'm all in. He knew I was a big Braves fan from Georgia, but man, he said, we're going to watch the Braves play the Orioles at Camden Yard, and when I went, I got to see Cal Ripken Jr. tack on another day to his record. Another start. If you're not familiar with that name, Cal Ripken Jr., ask any baseball fan. September the 6th, 1995, he played in his 2131st consecutive game, breaking Lou Gehrig's record for most consecutive games played without arrest. He became known as the Iron Man of baseball. He would go on and continue to play another 501 games, 2,632 consecutive games. I was toward the end of that streak when I got to see Cal Ripken Jr. play in person at Camden Yard. It was a big deal for me. And to see a couple of boys with the last name Jones who were young hit home runs for the Braves was kind of cool too. Listen, he didn't just show up. It'd be one thing. And by the way, that was an amazing record. He didn't just show up on those days. He also ended his career with over 3,000 hits. He also ended his career with 431 home runs. If you're not a baseball fan, that's a bunch. He also ended his career with two gold gloves. Very difficult task defensively. One of the best fielding shortstops. Ask about when he was going to quit, he once said this, As long as I can compete, I won't quit. Reaching 3,000 hits is not the finish line. As long as I can contribute, I will continue to play. Listen, I want people to look at our lives and see that as long as we can contribute, we're in the game. And listen, if you're breathing this morning, if you're under the sound of my voice, you have something to contribute. And I pray that you would allow this to be an encouragement, and admonishment this morning from God that you would say, I, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I, I believe in identifying with him in his passion and in his power. But I want to be steadfast. I want to be immovable. And until the Lord calls me home, I want to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. I want to be found faithful when he comes. 
ministering from the overflow, knowing I was resilient in the face of opposition because I was firmly established, firmly grounded in the faith. That's my prayer for every one of you. Some of you that are approaching or have already entered the retirement years, it's my prayer that you will still be found faithful, abounding in the work of the Lord, firmly established, resilient in the face of opposition. But for us as a church, for the Trinity family, I pray that like never before, we will recommit ourselves to bringing up a generation from cradle to graduation, that we'll bring up a generation that's firmly grounded in the faith, that's resilient no matter what this world throws at them, and that you can find them ministering the love and the grace of God in this world from the overflow of what God's doing in their hearts. Can we commit ourselves to that afresh and anew today, or some of us maybe even for the first time? Would you bow your heads with me?